teaching our next generation the drive, desire, work ethic, and character that will take them to new heights using neuroscience. Welcome back to season 10 of the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, where we connect the science-based evidence behind social and emotional learning that's finally being taught in our schools today and emotional intelligence training used in our modern workplaces for improved well-being, achievement, productivity, and results using what I saw as the missing link since we weren't taught this when we were growing up in school, the application of practical neuroscience. I'm Andrea Samadhi, an author and an educator with a passion for learning, and launched this podcast five years ago with the goal of bringing all the leading experts together in one place to uncover the most current research that would back up how the brain learns best, taking us all to new and often unimaginable heights. For today's episode number 295, we're going to speak to someone who I feel connected to with where he's going. But for many others, like my husband, Majid Samadhi, he's formed a huge connection to where he's come from. We'll be speaking with Mike Bordick today. He's a former Major League Baseball player whose 14-year career included time with the A's, the Orioles, Blue Jays, and the Mets. And I came to meet him when he contacted me, brainstorming ideas for ways that he can continue to give back to youth in his retirement with the organization that he's formed. It's called leagueofdreams.org. And they're celebrating their 20th year, and he's now looking at including content that links neuroscience to learning and physical education. When I saw his email to me, I wondered, what's a former baseball player emailing me about? And then when I got to what he was looking for, I thought he definitely found the right person, as that's what the podcast Neuroscience Meets SEL is all about. So I wrote back to him with ideas and resources from the podcast, with episodes that tied back to PE in the brain, and connected him to everyone I knew that's focused on PE and neuroscience. I can't wait to meet with Mike and learn more about his vision for neuroscience that stems from his college degree in PE and kinesiology and see what he does with this new program that he's working on that links brain health, physical activity, and nutrition. I also knew I couldn't ignore the path that led him to where he is today with his vision, so we'll dive a bit into his past on today's interview. Now, if you know me well, you'll know that I'm not really a sports fan. While I love being physically active myself, I haven't spent much time watching sports since maybe I was around 12 and my dad took me to hockey games in Toronto. I think I've been to one baseball game, but I never went back because it just wasn't my thing. I was sitting in the stands and watching the fans spitting on the ground. So when Mike's email came in, I asked my husband, Majid Samadhi, who's a huge baseball fan, have you ever heard of Mike Bordick? And the answer was a definite yes, and why do you ask? So before learning more about Mike's vision, you can go to his About Us page on his website, and you can see a fascinating path that led him to baseball. Majid filled in some of the blanks that I had from the point of view of an avid Mets baseball fan. 
I learned that Mike Bordick, while on the Orioles, was so highly regarded that they shifted Hall of Famer Cal Ripken Jr. to third base so that Mike Bordick could play shortstop. And then in 2000, he was traded to the New York Mets during the pennant race, where he went on to the World Series. And most importantly, he was part of the first Subway Series between the New York Mets and the New York Yankees in the 2000 World Series. So hearing this, it made me see a different side to Mike Bordick and his vision for youth. He brings all the attributes he learned and developed in leadership with his 14-year career in Major League Baseball. But what I'm interested in learning more about now is what he plans to do with the skills he learned in his career. I've asked Mike Bordick to join us and share his vision for where he's been and what he's built in his retirement and the legacy he'd like to leave with his experience, knowledge, and skills, all for the benefit of our next generation of youth. Let's meet Mike Bordick. Welcome, Mike Bordick. It's so awesome to meet you today. And this is my better half, Majid Samadhi, who knew you without even having to look you up. So we are honored to have you for this opportunity to learn more about your vision, but also bring your past experience in baseball to light. Welcome today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Uh, Andrea, I, I love your podcast. I've been a huge fan for a number of years now. And Majid, thanks for being a baseball fan, uh, especially a Mets fan. That was quite an experience I had being traded to the New York Mets back in 2000. So uh, this is going to be exciting. I, I'm really thrilled and honored to be a part of this. Same here. Well, so, so Mike, I was hoping to get some intel on McGill Batista after I met him briefly a few years ago, but since you rarely faced him, I've kind of changed my question a bit. And I really believe that you can get a solid understanding of someone by watching how they do certain things. You know that, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything idea. And uh, so I met Miguel Baptista, like very briefly, the only connection that I have to Major League Baseball. But I just wonder, you know, who stood out to you as a leader over the years of all the players you worked with? What do you think it was that took them to those higher levels of achievement over the years? Wow. I'll tell you what, I was so fortunate to be surrounded by some of the greatest. Obviously, uh, you play at the Major League level and you're playing with the greatest baseball players in the world. So uh, to be surrounded by so many. And then, of course, another group that get to go to the Hall of Fame. So they are considered, you know, the elite of the elite. Um, uh, I played with Cal Ripken, Mike Piazza, of course. I, and, and I can list off a, a number of names. I think I played with 10 or 11 Hall of Famers and, and managers included. Um, so... You know, learning from them and how they went about their business, I think, was so beneficial to me as it is to so many young players that break into the big leagues. When I first came up with the Oakland Athletics back in 1990, Harold Baines was on that team. Uh, Goose Gossage uh, was in that in that window. Dennis Eckersley, Ricky Henderson, all Hall of Fame guys. And to be able to watch them go about their business on a daily basis uh, was something that that uh, I'll never forget. I mean, the impact they had on me. And it wasn't just about uh, their incredible work ethic. It was just about how they were able to kind of calm themselves in the highest pressure situations. And I think that's the distinction really between the elite, elite players 
and just kind of a regular ho-hum major league player like myself, that ability to say, this is my task and I'm going to do it and not be distracted by the 50,000 fans screaming at you, telling you how bad you are, or the pressure of a moment when you're thinking, I've got to get a hit right now to help my team. That doesn't fly in the high-pressure situations. These guys have the ability, every one of them, to pull themselves back and say, I'm a hitter right now. I just took 100 swings off the tee. This is my process, and this is what I'm going to do in this high-leverage situation. And I think they all were great at, at doing that. And some of us were good at times, but inconsistent, uh, to say the least, in those high-pressure situations. So every one of these guys, I admired how they went about their business, how they work so hard. There, there, there's an incredible – these major league players and most major league players, they have a uh, – a singularity of purpose. This is what they do. And the guys that can hold on to that and, and take it into the game are the ones that climb to the highest levels. I love that. Cause I'm always looking to see what we can glean from others to kind of take us to, to new heights. And they definitely have skills that, that are just blow you away when you see them play. Right. Yeah. So many of these guys and, and I, um, Jim Palmer always talked about, and I had the pleasure of working with him um, on television broadcasts. Uh, he always talked about when you come to the field, you try to make yourself better every day. And some guys get caught up in, okay, I made it to the big leagues. Well, in some ways, it's easier to make it to the big leagues than it is to actually stay in the big leagues. You have to find a way to get that mindset going is trying to make yourself as good as you can be on a daily basis, whether it be taking ground balls, uh, precise work um, on your T drills, or your front toss drills, or how you approach batting practice. And, and I think the good ones can really kind of narrow that focus in. Uh, on their task and get better and better and really maximize what uh, what they can do with their body and mind. Definitely. Majid, you had an opening question that you wanted to ask Mike. For sure. For sure. Um, so Mike, being, being a, being a lifetime, uh, lifelong Mets fan. Um, I clearly remember the day that you were traded to the Mets. Cause I remember the first home game we went to, we got a chance to see you play. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine, Justin, and I used to have uh, many season tickets, so we used to go to a lot of games. And that the year 2000 that you were traded, it was a phenomenal year. It was an amazing year. If I'm not mistaken, that was your first All-Star game as well, too, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was uh, Personally, it was uh, a dream come true year, uh, really. And my experiences with the Mets were just unbelievable. So, yeah, that 2000 year was uh, – I don't know. I, I guess maybe where I peaked, I think, uh, athletically and 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 physically uh, as a major league player. Absolutely. And congratulations on such an amazing career as well, too. I looked up some stats and it was it was um, I didn't know this, but you broke a record for 110 consecutive games without an error. You had your yeah. all-star game in 2000. Um, you had a chance to go to the World Series with the Mets. Um, you know, it's 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 such as you said, there's not many players. It's easy. It's not easy. It's easier to make the the majors, as you mentioned, right? But to stick around and have such an amazing career is uh, it, it's it's an absolute honor, I'm sure, from from your part. And and it's it's uh, we're so humbled to have the opportunity to to hear about um, some of the great work you're doing now after such an amazing career as well, too. So thank you for everything that you've done for all the baseball fans over the years, and now the 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 more important work even now that you're doing giving back. Thank you. Thank Absolutely. you so much.
Yeah, I was I was blessed, obviously. Um, and I don't know if you know much about my my major league story. I was fortunate enough to play in actually two World Series, uh, nineteen ninety when I first came up with the Oakland Athletics. That kind of a dynasty type team, and then of course uh, being traded over to the New York Mets was really a dream come true. I mean, I, I think most players like to stay in their in the town they're in, and and I was certainly uh, hoping I could stay in Baltimore. Um, for the rest of my career, and I almost did. But um, to be able to get traded and experience another part of the game, um, to be able to be thrown right into the playoff-type atmosphere with the New York Mets was incredibly exciting. That Mets team, I, I know you uh, remember and can probably list off every player, Al Leiter, Mike Hampton. Of course, everything was led by Mike Piazza, the the great Hall of Fame catcher. Um but we had Robin Ventura, Edgardo Alfonso, Todd Zeal, and some great, a great group of young players. And I think that team kind of uh, exemplifies what a winning team should have. Incredible veteran players that have had experience and success at the highest level, coupled with the young player energy. Benny Agbayani, uh, Timo Perez, Peyton was on that team as well. So it was a great mix of, of awesome young players and quality uh, seasoned veteran players, but pitching leads the way and Al Leiter was a beast. Hampton was a beast. Of course, Franco in the bullpen, Armando Benitez. Uh, we had a great cast of characters and I think um, some really, um, I don't know, I, I guess uh, Turk Wendell comes to mind when it comes to like interesting, but successful players, Dennis Cook as well out in the bullpen. So it was a fun team to be a part of. And I think a lot of the New York teams, and even when you talk about, and it's hard for me to even say this, even when you talk about the New York Yankees and their great success, uh, they tend to come together better, right? I think the good managers find a way to bring their team together to avoid the distractions that are out there playing in in, in high market teams like New York, right, or Boston. Uh, those teams that really come together and pull for each other are the ones that eventually go on and have the great success. Joe Torre did a great job with that, with the Yankees for so many years. Of course, he had great team leadership with Derek Jeter, um, and I think Jeter even learning from you know, Don Mattingly and guys like that. So they all pulled together. And I think the Mets were were similar in that way, spearheaded by the leadership of obviously Mike Piazza, but Al Leiter was an incredible leader on that team as well. It's so it's so so much fun to hear all the names from uh, from that team because it was a <laughs> phenomenal team. And you are right, it's hard to bring up the Yankees because uh, being a Mets fan, that you know, we, we don't root for the Yankees. <laughs> No, it's, it's hard to even bring it up. Exactly. As a matter of fact, when I do clinics nowadays for some of the kids, if I see a kid with a Yankees hat on, I give them a hard time and say, I'm sorry, you're at the wrong camp here. So Thank you for doing that. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> Majid, is that all you wanted to ask? And and I want to thank you for being here today because there's no way I could get to this level. And and it just brings out your passion, Mike, for the sport that that will, you know, come out in the questions I've got for you. But did you want to ask something about Mike Piazza? Sure. As as you can see on the right behind my shoulder, right, there's a there's a signed Piazza jersey hanging up. Um yeah. you know, over the years, um, you know, they call him Iron Mike. He came, he came to New York from Florida when we traded for him. And I feel like that's really when when the shift started happening, right? The Mets were really good in the 80s, right? We won the World Series in 86, and then we took a little dip down, right? It's Every team has ups and downs. And and I feel like when uh, Piazza came over from the Marlins, it really changed everything. You know, even looking back now, 
when 9-11 happened, right, the team that happened and the team that was in New York, how they all pulled together. And Mike Piazza really carried that team throughout throughout the playoffs as well, too. But, um, you know, having the chance to play with Mike Piazza, what what are some things that he did really well as a, as a player, right? Obviously, you mentioned some of the great players you, you've uh, played with. Uh, that are in the Hall of Fame, such as Ricky Henderson, who was on the Mets as well, too. I remember watching, being right in the bleachers, yeah. right in the, the second row, and Ricky was in front of us in center field. What, <laughs> what an amazing person, right? Yeah. But what, what are some things that Mike Piazza did? What do you do as a teammate to help, you know, instill confidence with the play, with the other team members, right? Um, is there anything that sticks out to your mind that, that really um, um, was an impactful uh, process that he put into place obviously in that 2000 year with Clemens right with the in, in the World Series with the broken back yeah that whole that whole thing that was that was an amazing thing but um right anything you can share well I I'll, I will say this so when a superstar comes into your clubhouse um just his presence alone is impactful enough to change an organization and that is exactly what happened to the New York Mets when he came aboard coming over from the Marlins. Now he was only down there with the Marlins a brief time, but he was a superstar obviously Dodgers. out with the Dodgers and, and put together some just historic years uh, for a catcher. And I think you're right. That changed the organization for that period of time. I think everybody also bought in and said, Oh my gosh, we've got one of the best players, if not the best. I think he was like runner up to MVP for like five years in a row he came over to the uh, New York Mets. So legitimacy came into play and the fact that now we are going to be a contender because we have one of the greatest players in baseball right now. And he plays a premier position as well. Mike Piazza got a lot of flack, uh, I, I think, for being underrated behind the plate. And I thought he was incredible. The pitchers he had to handle, um, I thought he was a very underrated defensive catcher. But because of what he did so well offensively, um, you know, that stood head and shoulders above everybody and, and really kind of got him into the Hall of Fame. The, the fact that you can write in those numbers every year, over 100 RBIs, over 30 home runs every year, and hit over 300 as a catcher every season is just mind-blowing. So he didn't even have to say a word, and he wasn't a very vocal leader. There were times he got fired up, that's for sure. But just his presence, how he went about his business, I already brought up about that singularity of focus. You want to talk about somebody that had heightened focus when it came to swinging a bat? Mike Piazza was the guy. You would want him in every big situation because he found a way to pull himself back, relax, and maximize his ability at such an intense uh uh, moment of the game uh, he was amazing so much fun to watch and even before I got to play with him with the Mets he was the guy in spring training that we would go out and watch take BP just to see him hit the ball there were only a handful of guys that I like to do that with Piazza was one and Mark McGuire was the other just watching them take BP how they went about their business was special and Piazza obviously a very special player as he's in Cooperstown uh, with so many, uh, well, all the greats, obviously. Yeah, and I think what's really nice about Piazza as well, too, is it goes back to the work that you're doing and Andrea's doing as well, too, right? He was a low draft pick. He wasn't given a chance. Um, I follow him on on Twitter and Instagram, and he's always posting about that he was told to pack up his stuff and go home. He would never make it to the majors. He would never amount to anything. And, and look at the career that he had, right? It's all about the mind 
how you focus yourself, how you prepare yourself, as you, as all the, the great examples you just shared, how you mentally prepare yourself to do everything. And Absolutely. he was able to accomplish that. Yeah, he, he obviously uh, an incredible example. Listen, there were a lot of us that didn't even get drafted. Right. Um, I was an undrafted player, and you got to find ways to overcome, right? And it's just about narrowing that focus, putting your nose to the grindstone, working hard, and being prepared for that opportunity whenever it presents itself. Piazza climbed his way through the minor leagues. I'm not comparing myself at all to Mike Piazza. He's obviously an incredible Hall of Fame type player. But, you know, you got to find ways to, to take advantage of opportunities because in many chances or many ways, low draft picks and even undrafted players, that window of opportunity closes fast. You may only get that one chance. And if you can't impress somebody at that time, you might not get that other chance. So, yeah, Piazza is a great example uh, of going about your business the right way, becoming a dependable teammate and, and you know, individual player, obviously. So, uh, yeah, he, he's a great example for all kids. And, and I like to share that same kind of message when I talk to kids. Um, you know, you got to work hard at this. You got to understand that there's a process involved. There are going to be tough times, obviously, uh, ahead. But if you have the right kind of mental attitude, um, that good internal drive, which obviously Mike Piazza had, you can go uh, a long ways. Thank you, Mike. Well, so Mike, that brings me into my first question for you and, and why we're here today. We want to talk about what you're building with all of this. But before we get to that, I really want to go back to the ingredients that made you who you are today, because you're, you've done, obviously, I couldn't have pulled that those questions out of you. Thank you so much, Majid, for asking those, because we've seen a little bit about your sports background now, and, and I know where you're going with this, with what you're building for youth, but... I, I was reading your website and your about me section, and you got to see a little bit about what made you into an, a major league baseball player. And I related to what you wrote about having a strict father and having fear being instilled into your young heart, because my uh -huh. dad was like that completely. He was like terrifying, but something about, you know, that just made me be a stronger person in life. What we're just talking about, you got to get through the hardships. We don't want to be too easy on our kids, but what, what do you think were the ingredients? If you think about growing up that made you to who you are today, that got through all of that and then giving back for the, for the youth, what, what were these things for you? Yeah. Well, you know what? I think uh, our generation, well, I'm certainly older than you, but uh, back then there was a, more of that kind of fixed mindset. You know, everything was was a little bit different. And I think we've kind of evolved uh, with how we develop our youth nowadays, hopefully uh, it, for the better. Um, but I think back then being pushed hard, driven, um, you know, you got to be tough, uh, rinse and spit, you know, when you take a drink of water back there, they wouldn't even let you drink. And, and my dad was like that. Listen, he was, a, he had a tough life too. Uh, he came from, a, you know, a tough background. He was, he, he was an Air Force guy. So the discipline was just part of his nature. And um, I, I think for me, uh, dealing with that kind of helped me obviously down the road. But I didn't really like it as a kid. There were times I just wanted my dad to give me a hug. You know what I mean? Yeah. Instead, you know, when I'm laying there after a football game and it felt like my back was just compressed and 
he gave, leaned over. He said, you got to be tough. And he put his hand out to pick me up. And I said, I can't even breathe, Dad. Come on. How about a hug right here? You know, so I don't know. Those kind of things, I guess, internally made me a little bit stronger. Uh, there were times, though, that I really resented him for, for that kind of stuff. And it wasn't until I got into high school that I felt like when he actually stopped coaching me that I felt like I could spread my wings a little bit. Now, he did teach me about grit and toughness. There's no doubt about that. I, but I think there are other ways to kind of circumvent how direct sometimes he could have been with that. I'm forever thankful for everything he, he gave me. But now as a, you know, as a father and a, and a coach, I try to look for different ways to try to get the most out of kids. Um, sometimes you certainly do have to be honest in, in your approach. So I let kids know that there are vulnerabilities in the sport. There is fear in the sport. A, a lot of base young baseball kids, you know, they don't ask me when I'm in there giving a lesson about the mechanics of a swing. They ask me, how do I overcome the fear and anxiety when I step in the batter's box? And I think that's where most coaches become great coaches, when they're able to kind of share experiences with a young player or a young player in a tough situation, how to take deep breaths and kind of try to relax yourself a little bit and understand that the guy on the mound or the other players, they're kind of going through the same thing. So when they hear a story of how scared I was, as a young player, how vulnerable I was as a young player. And sometimes, and I, we may talk about this, I was cut from teams as a young player, and I always thought I was pretty good, yet it just didn't happen for me. But to somehow pull yourself up and have that internal motivation to keep working hard, to try to make yourself better on a daily basis, and good things will end up happening. Um, there are so many different kind of techniques, as you know, Andrea, about you know, breathing to help relax your mind, slow things down a little bit, maybe stare off at, a, at an object so that you can refocus uh, and set yourself right for the next task at hand. But so many of these young players, I just keep reminding them of all the hard work they put in in the batting cage uh, when they're doing their work out on the field and when they cross the lines to relax and just play and have fun because that's what the game is all about. If you cannot have fun playing this game, then maybe you should try to play something else. And a lot of times kids end up embracing the work that you have to put in and understand that it's really it's just a lifelong process. I was lucky enough to enjoy that process till I was 37 years old. Not many get a chance to do that. And that's when I guess when I got into my mid 30s, actually, was when so many repetitions under my belt where the game kind of started slowing down for me. I always had a great time playing it, but it was just that long process that it takes to all of a sudden uh, feel like you're in control of what you're doing out there. But it takes forever to, to kind of get there. Love that answer. And and especially, you know, just trying to find a fine line, because I, I felt I related to everything you said about your dad. And it, I loved the end result. But now with my kids, you know, when their beds are messy, I don't go terror them up and say, make it again. Like, I don't know. My dad wasn't in the military, but he, he might as well have been. So <laughs> finding that fine line uh, of the middle ground to do things a different way, knowing that, uh, you know, you don't want your kids to resent you or even the, the kids that you're coaching. You want them to to look up to you. So I, I like that. You know, you don't have to be so hard on them. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, there, 
there's some great books out there now. Um, uh, there's a an author, John O'Sullivan, I believe is his name, and he talks about, you know, different ways that, and reframing, I think, comes into play, right? How, how you, there's, you can say, you got to do it this way, but you don't have to say it like that, right? You can reframe and make it sound a little bit more positive. And I think when you give young players, especially, and kids uh, more ownership, they become eventually more responsible and accountable for their own actions. So that in turn helps everything else kind of bubble up, the persistence, the desire, the commitment uh, that we all love to talk about so much in sports. And, and that's when they really have that internal drive and motivation. And I think that's the ultimate goal uh, for coaches, for parents as well, so that we can all of a sudden push our kids out and know that they are responsible young adults. They're going to be great in their community. They're going to have great uh, teamwork skills. They're going to be character people that understand really what it takes to be consistent and 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 hold you know the highest kind of standards for themselves. I, I think um, unfortunately nowadays a lot of kids get caught up in the extrinsic kind of values where they think, well, I want to have that Lamborghini. I want to make a million dollars. But it's the kids that have the internal drive that are ones that kind of overcome. They don't care about that. They appreciate the hard work that it takes. They want to do one more rep. They want to get back out there and have a little bit more intensity and focus uh, on their skill work. And that's the fun stuff. When you can see kids kind of grasp that. And when we talk about the fine lines, Kids have to have fun at youth sports. They can't be locked in to trying to make themselves as good as possible. It's when you're passionate about your sport and you you love it, that's when finally you'll work at it. You'll be in the backyard doing it on your own. You'll, you'll be thinking about it when you lay down at night. You'll be having those visualization skills working for you. And, and I think that's our 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 ultimate goal, right? And, and you know, kids are going to be what they want to be. I have six kids, and I can share with you some examples of my three older kids. They love sports. They love being a part of a team, but they never brought it home. And I was able to recognize that early, so I appreciated, you know, what they did on the field. I appreciated them enjoying their sports. My three younger kids were all incredible athletes. They did bring it home. They wanted to work at it. And I, as a parent, I had to find a, a way to kind of manipulate through and have them appreciate their work, try to work harder to make themselves better. One went off and played Division three college. One's playing uh, community college baseball right now. And my 16-year-old and I are on travel baseball circuit. So it's been a lot of fun to see how they go about their business and, and really love sport and understand the work that has to go in to try to make themselves better. Love it. Love it. Um, Majid, you had a question for Mike. Yeah, even before my question, Mike, thank you for being such a great role model, not only for for every, all the kids that you, you have the opportunity to work with and really um, sharing your experiences and instilling the values that you've experienced and learned over the years. Right. It's there's a lot of coaches out there that had played, you know, that have played minor league or college or, or some sort of um, professional ball. But for somebody who had the success that you had throughout your career and really being a role model and sharing those values is phenomenal, right? The other part is that you have, not only do you have all the baseball skills, right? But you have all the mental skills as well too, as to, as to what's important to, to, um, to really build you as a person, right? Being the person, uh, creating the passion for, for the game, right? All those things are phenomenal things that, 
not everybody has to add. So what you add is, is, um, is something really unique and, um, it's, it's a life changer for people that will go through, you know, the work that you're doing. So thank you for I, doing all that. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I do have a little bit of pride about that. I, and I think I've learned from so many great players, uh, you know, how to hold yourself, uh, accountable, how to be responsible on the field. Um, some of the great leaders I played with Carney Lansford. I already talked about Cal Ripken a little bit, just how they went about their business. Um, you know, you try to learn, I, I, I think from everybody along the way, uh, much like Andrea's, uh, podcast that that's why I enjoy listening to it so much. There's so many incredible guests, uh, the doctors, uh, regular people talking about brain health and things like that. And as I've kind of, uh, worked my way through this journey of life and, you know, I got to appreciate, obviously, playing baseball at the highest level, uh, being around some great people, uh, learning how the game works and how to kind of maximize skills. Now I've kind of uh, taken more of a, a personal, individual kind of health and wellness kind of attitude where I want to try to even make myself better, just more mental clarity and so that I can pass that kind of stuff along to kids. So not only do I talk to kids about, yeah, you know, the hard work, the internal motivation, um, you know, persistence, grit, desire, all that great stuff. Um, now I talk to them about, you know, eating properly, uh, paying attention to what you put in your body, uh, brain health, how exercise can impact your brain and make you better and go beyond things that you never even can imagine uh, which is so much fun for me. And if I can do it at 57 years old, can you imagine what a 14-year-old young athlete can do if all of a sudden they change just a little bit, maybe do a little different kind of exercise? Uh, Andrea, that book, Spark, is just incredible. Uh, I've already listened to it, and I'm listening to it again just because of the impact exercise has and proven impact it has on so many kids and adults alike uh, that that is kind of the beauty i think of this sure we want our young kids to just be as good as they possibly can be maximize everything they can and i know it's hard sometimes uh for kids to understand that at a young age but the more times they can hear a certain message sometimes it sticks and if you can impact one or two kids man can they influence a lot of people down the road so it's a lot of fun there but even even older people I love talking to kids uh, before we do clinics, uh, before we do lessons at uh, team events and things like that. But then I pull the parents aside and I love to talk to them and have them kind of hear the story as well. And and if one or two things stick out, maybe even parents can can change their lives, because as you know, Andrea, the brain can change. Right. You could you could uh, completely change your life by doing a couple different things. And I'm excited to share that kind of message as well love it, love it are you good do you have more to yeah so just just real quick mike um so since playing in new york has a lot of advantages um and at the same time it can be a really difficult place to play to play especially with the media around right i know the media is probably the toughest toughest uh media around the nation but at the same time it's it's passion right they they really want to make sure that their their teams are doing well what are some skills that would you say that you've developed um, being around the New York media and all, in general, all media, right? And how you're able to transfer some of those skills to the kids that you work with today? Yeah, that's a really great question because, yeah, New York media is relentless and the fan base is relentless. They right. demand perfection. They want it. 
Um, Bouye all the time, right? We They'll supported you all the time, just so you know. We never, we never uh, gave you a hard time or anything. <laughs> you know, I do not believe that since you <laughs> are a Mets it's fan. Because every Mets fan will boo, but every Mets fan will cheer if you do something good for the team. Right. So, but you are a senior, right? if, I, if I remember it right, you came in because Ray Ordonez was hurt, right? Is that is yeah, yeah, correctly? Exactly. So, hey, we needed you in the worst way, and you came in and you took us to the World Series as part of that team. So, <laughs> we weren't booing you. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I really do. Yeah, I love the Mets fan. Mets, uh, they've got an incredible following. When I first came to Balt, now the Oakland A's being stuck on the West Coast, right. uh, sometimes it's a forgotten about team, even though they had great players coming up through the uh, early 90s. Mm-hmm. When I came to Baltimore, Baltimore, Camden Yards, was it was like you felt like a rock star in there because it sold out every night. We had superstar right. players in there. We had Robbie Alomar. We had uh, – you know, obviously Cal Ripken, Brady Anderson out there, um, Rafael Palmero. So we had a star-studded cast, and people came to see that and appreciated it. But not nothing like the New York Mets, because when we went on the road, we still had a huge following. It was unbelievable. You want, We really did feel like rock stars, especially when we had success. Now, the Mets made it to the postseason in 99. In 2000, all of a sudden, here they go. And there was an incredible energy uh, with the fan base um, at Shea Stadium, it was incredible. Shea Stadium, and I'm sure you felt it, it, it moves when the crowd gets going. Like the whole stadium moves. You could see it right. move. Uh, the field started shaking as well. So there was an incredible amount of excitement. And I kind of digressed a little bit right there. But back to the media type thing. Um, something, and this is kind of a cool story. When I was in college, I, I had a summer job. And my boss came, started calling me Rhino one day and I asked him, I said, why do you call me Rhino? And he said, well, you're like a Rhino. You're charging after what you want. You come in here and you work and then you go play your game and you practice at night. And I was like, oh, okay, Al, that, that's cool, whatever. Well, the next like day or two, he brought me some motivational tapes and uh, they all referred to the Rhino. And something that really stuck out, and I do collect Rhinos and I actually have a Rhino tattoo as well. But so the rhino became kind of my spirit animal because it said some really cool things. But one of the most influential things it said was rhinos have thick skin. They want the challenges. They accept the challenges because they know it's just going to bounce off and they will attack um, and, and accept whatever comes their way. And that's kind of the attitude I took with the media, like to the point where I knew they had a job. They had to, you know, write or say whatever they had to say. I never ever had a conflict with the media. I never read what they said, but I didn't ever turn down interviews and things like that. I understood. I knew if I had a bad game or if I did something wrong that something not nice was going to be said about me. And I accepted that as just part of the, uh, you know, part of the job description. So I never got too worked up about that. I did see other guys take a lot of it just way too personally. I, I always thought, well, that is just such a terrible distraction. I've got to try to do other things to prepare myself to play in a major league game. I don't need to worry about what the media says. They've just got to do their job. So, you know, and, and I know uh, the New York media might have been a little bit more intense, but I just I just never got caught up with it. I, I really didn't. So, um, and I, like I said, I knew they had a job to do and I had a job to do too. I just had to make myself as good as I possibly could. So how do you transfer those over to the kids? So 
So as, as you work with, with the kids, right. Is it, is it that, Hey, don't let the little things bother you or, or uh, what are some, some things that, because that's a, that's a great value the way of going about it. Right. So how do you transfer those over to, to kids that you work with? Absolutely. And I share that message. I love telling my rhino story and I love telling kids that, you know, the damn the torpedoes full speed ahead kind of attitude, because especially if you play sports, you are going to get knocked down again and again and again. And then all of a sudden, when the game doesn't knock you down, somebody else is going to try to knock you down. So you've got to find ways to pull yourself up. You've got to have that kind of rhino attitude where you have thick skin. And, and all of a sudden, when they start accepting and embracing the challenges, that's when good things really start to happen. It, it, that's when kids flourish is when they say, yeah, that's just part of it, man. You know, we hear it all the time. Failure is the biggest part of success. I mean, you are just going to get knocked down, drugged through, and you got to find a way to pull yourself up. And I think just good work habits, a great uh, mindset and, and experience helps young athletes kind of rise to the top and understand that it, it's just part of the journey, man. It's just part of the process uh, and accept it and things will get better. Thank you, Mike. So I'm I'm trying to pull all these ingredients together here. All the questions that that we're asking you are all kind of letting people that are listening understand where you've come from, so they know the characteristics that you're trying to instill in our next generation. And when I was reading your about us section, it was this this sentence that really caught my attention. You said the solitude I found fishing by myself is what I truly loved. And so you're talking about ways to recharge now. And I, I wasn't into fishing. Majid is more so than I am. But what is it that you enjoy so much about the solitude of, of fishing? Is it being in nature? And then how can we translate that to our kids to be outside more? Well, man, oh man, when you start getting in touch with nature, good things are going to happen in your life. I think there are so many benefits, obviously. But for me... Um, at the end of a long baseball season, I would always go right back up to Maine and head to the mountains of Maine. That's where we're uh, from. Uh, my wife's from up there as well. And there's incredible uh, fishing spots where you can go get lost on a dirt road for miles and miles and see a stream and just jump in and start fishing. And so all of a sudden experience the oneness, I think, in so many ways with nature, to see Mother Nature at work, to all of a sudden clear your mind of the stress that that happens through trying to um you know play in front of 50,000 people whether it be a baseball player or even a a, a job that you're doing uh, that kind of stuff just builds up so it's an incredible stress relief for me you start seeing things differently you open your eyes to and in your ears to hearing nature sounds one of the I've had so many great experiences just by myself in nature uh, one time fly fishing in the middle of the woods of Maine. And all of a sudden I heard this crashing on this hill coming down behind me and a moose came right into the river and just started wading across the river. I was like, are you kidding me? How, how could this be? And I, it just gives you a great appreciation. Um, listen, I, I, I have a hard time and I've tried this and, and I think through your counseling, Andrea, to sit down and meditate. But when you're in nature and you have this oneness with nature, that is true meditation to me. Um, whether it be trying to cast a fly out on a river or even whether you're bass fishing or, or whatever. And if you're by yourself 
your mind clears and you focus on what you're doing in front. You hear the water rippling in front of you. I, I just I, I just think it's so therapeutic. Uh, I think health and wellness starts with understanding nature and becoming part of nature. Um, I, I believe in universal experiences. I think us coming together today is one of these things that I kind of threw out of the universe and now here I am. Oh my gosh. But I think it's all being part of, of nature and appreciating mother nature um, and, and how she works. And, you know, I, I just love it. I, I've all I've also started uh, some of my workouts now. I, I go barefoot, and I love kind of just grounding uh, with the earth as well. Uh, I just think there's just undisclosed benefits of, of being out outside, smelling the roses, if you will, right? Um, hearing the birds chirp. I think we need that in the hustle and bustle of today's world. And I encourage kids to, to get outside as well. I mean, kids now more than ever need to somehow put the phone down, uh, get off the computer and get outside and run around a little bit and breathe fresh air uh, and experience it. It goes such a long way. I think the benefits are endless, to be honest with you. And I think that's, you know, when you couple it with with eating properly, with moving your body properly, and then being outdoors, nothing but good things can happen. I mean, and I, I think you live a long, healthy life if you start experiencing nature in that way. So true. But did you have anything to add to to the solitude of fishing? Because I know you fish. Yeah, it's it's you can't. Everything you said is 100% accurate. I had a chance to go fish in Alaska and just find a river and just just walk down the river. And you, you're looking on the ground, you see a moose print, you see a uh, you see a bear print, right? And you know right. that nature is all around you. Yeah, and it's you know everything you said. I 100% agree with. Also, the fact that you're standing there in nature and your mind, you can just let your mind go, right? And you can just just you can have a lot of internal thinking. And this and um, really work things out while you're fishing, right? So I, it's it's almost like meditating, as you said, right? It, it is meditation. Mm -hmm. So 100 percent agree. Yeah. Absolutely. So so Mike, my next question for you, we've kind of covered a little bit on you know the character and the attitude that you're trying to instill in our next generation. So I'm gonna kind of go to your question that broke my heart a little bit when I was reading your about us section. And it was your fifth grade experience. Um, <laughs> it was mostly because it just breaks my heart when kids are left out or picked last. It, you know, when I was teaching, I was always trying to avoid those situations where you have to pick a kid last. But um, there's always one person like that that is, you know, left out. And they're the ones that take off like a rocket. And I can look back to my middle school and elementary, those kids that just never fit in, really, they're all medical doctors now doing amazing <laughs> right. things. So, you know, what do you think it was about the hardship at school that gave something that made you stronger? Yeah, I, I think my whole youth experience, really, and I can complain about it all I want, but when you travel, the longest we ever lived in one place was three years. So, you know, I went to eight different schools, I, I think, before I was even in high school. So the to, to kind of adapt and adjust and conform through meeting new friends, trying to be on a, a new team uh, every stop was very challenging. And some kids were accepting of it and kind of understood what was going on. And other kids 
you know, resented new kids. Uh, that's just the way it was. And I, I think at a young age, I got a, a pretty good understanding of, of people and kids and how different they were and maybe how to talk to kids or maybe not even talk to kids. Um, so those are like the challenges uh, of my youth that I think have benefited me uh, socially, um, for sure, uh, as I grew into an adult. And, and even today, I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of of, of people, uh, empathetic in a lot of different ways of, of understanding what people go through, the challenges, and um, just from, I guess, my youth experiences. So those kind of things I can I can help share with kids as well. And I know there aren't many that get those opportunities to travel around and have to, the challenges of playing in different schools and, and asking your dad, do I really have to go out there, I, you know, to play at tryout for this football team when everybody looks so big and nobody knows who I am, you know, but, but those are the ones where I think in a lot of ways as a young kid, uh, the ability, and I didn't even know this word back then, but to have paradigm shifts, Right to be able to say, wow, I can actually do something a little bit different, step outside of my little comfort zone, the little box I'm in right now, and accept this challenge. And wow, things have worked out. They move forward and good things eventually happen. That day in fifth grade or that time in fifth grade, I remember it well because nobody wanted to even talk to me. It was a small school. Um, and it was, I came through halfway, like halfway through the year. So everybody was already, they had their cliques, they had their friends and everything like that. But we had a, a softball game um, that day. Like this one kid stepped on my hand on the stairs and kind of turned around and said, like, what are you going to do about it? And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm in trouble here. Well, we had a softball game at, at recess. And I got up there and I hit a, I hit a ball and it actually broke a window in a house across the street so i got one of my best bolts it was almost like that first at bat with the mets you know a very memorable swing so uh broke the window and wouldn't you know it all of a sudden i instantly became like everybody's best friend that was awesome we all ran off the field because we were scared that the neighbor was going to come over to the schoolyard and people started talking to me so it's kind of weird how things work out um but yeah th those are some of the challenges of youth and i love sharing them with kids because you know it ain't easy being a kid nowadays, that's for sure. And, and any time you can share your story, uh, show uh, examples of vulnerabilities, downtimes uh, where you're not feeling so good. I already talked about, you know, being cut from teams. That, that was like the most devastating thing I, I ever went through, being cut. I, not only did I get cut from basketball, I got cut from baseball and football all in the same year. So it kind of set me back because my whole life I thought, that's really what got me in being an athlete, being able to run out on the field. And all of a sudden people say, oh, yeah, he can play. Let's go. Come on. He's good. He's good. And then all of a sudden to be cut from teams, it made me start questioning. Am I yeah. really that good? Or is it this right. time of my life where, you know, uh, I'm, I, this is where I stopped playing sports. And, and fortunately, I had sports to fall back on it on the base that we were living on. So it kind of kept me going. But, um, yeah, those are challenges that all kids go through. You know, and one thing I think that's super important is some of these kids and the way sports are set up nowadays, you know, yeah, they have their elite travel teams that kids go off to. But I encourage kids, I don't care how good or bad you are, continue to play sports because you can do these things your whole life. And it's a great way to get outside. It's a great way to build community, um, talk to people. Social skills are 
if you ask me, kind of on the decline right now. So the more times you can get out and be part of a team, the more it enhances those those great lifelong skills uh, for sure. Hey, I was cut from the basketball team as well in, in high school, and it was devastating. It was like the coach was – I went to look at the list, and I wasn't on it. I was like, yeah. wait, wait, what? I and know, right? And the coach said, I think you should join the running team. And I'm like, I don't want to join the running team. I want to play basketball. And, yeah. and that really messed me up mentally, sports-wise, to have someone not choose you that when you thought you are good, right? No, absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned basketball because basketball was the first team I was cut from that year. And it impacted me so much that I never played basketball again. I only played baseball and football. So I I actually stopped playing base, uh, basketball. Um, and it was just one of those things where, well, maybe I didn't have the, the confidence anyway. And then all of a sudden told me that I wasn't good enough to be on this team. So that kind of really suppressed my my basketball uh, life. And I never, I always shot around, but I never even tried out for another basketball team. And, uh, but baseball and football I was able to stick with. Fortunately, when my dad retired, we went to Maine and the school that we went to was smaller. So I got to be a part of the football team and actually never left the field. Nowadays, you know, some of these schools you're specialized where you're just an offensive player or a defensive player. But when I played football up in Maine, I mean, I was, I, my senior year, I was a quarterback. I was a punter. I was a kicker. I was a defensive back. It was the most fun I ever had. And I always even tell kids, they think, oh, baseball was your favorite sport, right? No, football was my favorite sport. I just loved playing football. Uh, and I encourage kids to play as many sports as they can. If they truly want to be uh, the best athlete they can be, you learn so much about how your body moves in space, how you communicate with others. You get different coaches, techniques that will help you in the long run. Um, so playing multiple sports, I think, is a huge benefit for kids nowadays. And that's a really good story to share with kids. You know, they want to know what went wrong in your life because you could sit there and tell them all the great things, show them the trophies, but watch their faces when you say, you know, hey, I was cut and this really messed me up and I never played again. They they want to hear that, right? Yeah. That no, that absolutely. Changes them. Yeah, they they love to hear those those kind of stories. They love to hear the adversity that that kids went through. Um because you know every one of them did. And obviously the the one of the biggest ones that comes to my mind, Michael Jordan, he got cut in middle school as well. And now he's he went on to be the greatest basketball player of all time. You know, even the superstars in the game have setbacks. You know, we talked about Mike Piazza already you know, wasn't really given a chance, was was considered just, a, you know, a favor to be signed by the Dodgers. And, you know, when kids get these opportunities and they see hope and a light, you know, they can kind of work their way through and, and sometimes come out on, on the greatest end of things. Definitely. Well, let's talk, if we could, about where you're taking all of this. I think we've painted a beautiful picture of, you know, your career, and all the skills and ingredients that you've learned along the way. So now, where did this come in of wanting to connect neuroscience to PE and learning? What are you doing? What's going on with it? Fill us all in. Yeah, well, I have a great dream, and I'm with I'm part of another incredible team. Um, it's called League of Dreams. Um, you can check it out at leagueofdreams.org. But 20 years ago, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary this year. A great friend of mine uh, founded 
the League of Dreams. He was a minor league player with the Oakland Athletics. His son now actually plays in the big leagues, won a World Series ring with the Dodgers. His name is Adam Kalerik. His dad, who started the League of Dreams, is named Frank Kalerik. And he had a dream to use baseball and softball as kind of an opportunity to give special needs kids of any special need an opportunity to play baseball and softball. Now, in the 20 years, we have done so much to kind of diversify and go different ways. We've started a swim program. We've also gotten into the STEM program. And the reason we've done that is because we have a superstar on our board and her name is Kelly Spinell. And she is all about dealing with neuroscience and understanding how the brain works. She uh, has an education in working with special needs kids in education, but has gotten certified and recertified and really kind of sparked my interest in the neuroscience world. And a lot of times, some of the books that I've read along the way, they talk about brain health and how to maximize your brain and the neuroplasticity and how kids can kind of be, you know, uh, circumvented into thinking more positive about themselves. And her and I have kind of collaborated on some things and we've talked about it. And our dream is to give kids these opportunities to educate them on actually how the brain works and what happens when you exercise, what happens when you put good food into your body and how the brain actually responds and can, can change itself and rewire itself to do the things, the good things you want it to do. Uh, we are so excited about this kind of opportunity. Um, and we kind of thrive on grants. We have great partners. I told you uh, the Cal Ripken Senior Foundation has really kept us going over the years with their sponsorship. But we have grant writers now, so we're getting more funding in that regard. We have an ultimate dream to 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 build a school. Uh, initially, we've talked about you know an after school program where we can educate young kids on the power of nutrition, the power of brain health, and how you know they can really better their lives. Because a lot of the kids we work with in the special needs community, you know, come from broken homes. You know, they, 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 they don't have access to a lot of things that other kids have. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, they, they just don't make the money. They don't have the, the means. And we can, we have a dream of having a garden, teaching them how to grow plants and, you know, fruits and vegetables and things like that um, to talk about the nutrition side of thing. But it's more of a kind of a community great based integrated system that is a little bit different, I, I think, than, than kind of the structure that education presents us nowadays. And I think more and more people are trying to do something a little bit different, more innovative. And that's where we feel like we can make an impact on, on our community. We have great partners that we're working with right now, a couple of the community colleges. Um, we want to start workforce development as well. Uh, the STEM program, we just launched our first STEM program, adaptable STEM program in Oklahoma City. So we're incredibly excited about that. We're going to launch another program this fall. Uh, at Bear School, which is right in Baltimore, a special needs school that we're excited to to be a part of. So we've got a lot of things in the works and, and we're excited what the future is going to hold for the League of Dreams um, and inspiring and, and and hopefully impacting so many uh, lives in our community. Yeah, it's it's more of a, uh, you know, holistic community based approach. And we're love being involved with our community right now. Well, when you first contacted me and let me know this is what you were looking to do, I thought, wow, it just motivated me a bit more to keep doing what I'm doing. So, you know, we're all connected. 
Um, you know, thank goodness Majid was here to fill me in on your background because I don't think I would have brought it out enough. And so everything you do matters. And then what I'm doing, it, it keeps getting more and more people interested in, and the whole point is to give back. And so that's what I love about it. Um, what would be some of your final thoughts and reflections of what you'd like to do? And I, I encourage uh, kids and adults alike to stay curious about things, you know, question things, um, educate yourself on, on as much as you possibly can. I started diving into health and wellness um, probably I don't know, six or seven years ago, I didn't get the best diagnosis on one of my doctor's reports. And I was like, wait a second, this can't happen because I was a professional athlete, you know, my whole life. I tried to take care of myself as well as I could. Um, I followed all the guidelines nutritionally. And, and I think a lot of things kind of change over time. And back then, I think as well as you know, Andrea, it used to be like carb loading. If you're an athlete, you got to, you know, eat a lot of bread, eat a lot of pasta. Well, that screwed me up. It really did. It set me back uh, to a point where I started questioning stuff. So I started getting uh, more knowledgeable about uh, my own health. I started reading. So there's so many great books out there and listening to podcasts. And then, of course, uh, wanting to help kids. The neuroscience uh, field came in. But that nutritionally based you know, you could you can fix your brain by just the foods you eat. So there's a great combination there with exercise and nutrition. I think being curious is something that I always promote to the kids. Uh, just about, do you want to really be an athlete? Well, you better start being curious about how to take care of yourself, how to take care of your body and your mind. Because if a kid has heard one time, I'm sure they've heard a thousand times, when you make it to the highest levels of sport, it's more of a mental game. It's not a physical game. Sure, they're big, strong athletes, but it's how mentally fit and strong they are that, that leads them to the success they have. That's it. That is so true. Mike, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your powerful story that, you know, we went back to your childhood and, and then Majid helped bring out your 14-year career in Major League Baseball and then going into what you've already built for the past 20 years with your League of Dreams programs and where you're going. So this is right up my alley. I am so thrilled to have this opportunity to talk with you. And, and I know I speak on, on Majid's behalf as well because um, his questions just showed how passionate he was watching you and what he got <laughs> from, from the sport over the years. And now you're bringing that to our next generation. So I just can't express how excited I am personally for this opportunity to get the word out there of what you're doing. And I'd love to continue to be a resource. If, if you know, you need anything, um, that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm sitting here learning and then trying to share out to the world um, how to connect neuroscience to be better, be healthier um, for, for the future. So I just wanna thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, Andrea, thank you so much. Majid, thank you, too, for the great questions. Um, like I said earlier, what an honor it is to be a part of this podcast. I, I love sharing my story, and hopefully we can impact as many people as we can uh, while we're here. Incredible. You have an awesome weekend because this was a, a Friday morning uh, early for us over here. But you're where are you right now? You're at your mom's I'm house? In yeah, man, my mom's in Zephyr Hills, Florida. Um, I'm following my son on his uh, travel baseball tour. We just did a tournament up in Georgia. We have a tournament down here in Florida. So we're spending a few days with my mom uh, right here in Zephyr Hills. 
Very cool. And when does he play next? Uh, Monday. Okay. Yeah. Well, good luck on Monday and you have an awesome weekend. Thank you. You too. Thanks Thank you, again for having me. Some final thoughts, reflections, and aha moments. I think it helps to share any aha moments that were noticed during the interview or while editing, since learning is something that's ongoing. I'm sure as you listen to this interview, you could relate with your own personal life experiences. Majid and I reflected on this interview together as I wondered what he noticed that I might have missed. Here were our biggest takeaways from speaking with Mike Bordick. First, go deep when researching to find the heart behind the why. It doesn't take that much time to get to know someone on a deeper level, especially when you're researching them for an interview. I watched some of Mike's television clips, and I noticed that the questions he was asked were usually ones that were on the surface, like, what are you building for youth? And these questions still highlighted the incredible work he's doing with leagueofdreams.org, but for me, there was something missing. I like to feel the heart of each person I'm speaking to, and I knew I didn't have the knowledge and background to get there on my own. I knew I needed help with this interview to uncover the heart behind Mike Bordick's mission and legacy, and I saw it when Majid bought back some of the memories of sitting in the stands watching Mike's games in his early days. Mike wouldn't have known what it felt like from a fan's point of view, and Majid had no idea that the field actually shook when the fans cheered or booed because he's never been on the field. He only knew the stands would shake from his point of view. Mike got to see Majid's perspective and vice versa, which is when I noticed the magic started to happen. We also noticed that while you can attempt to research someone thoroughly, you still won't be able to find out everything. So find ways that your guests can add to what you've uncovered if you might have missed something. We didn't know that Mike Bordick played in two World Series games, but by recognizing him in one, he was able to fill in the blanks and give us the full picture. So how to put this aha moment into action? When speaking with anyone, whether it's an interview I'm doing for a podcast, or if you're working with a customer that you're trying to get to know in the business world, or if I think about it, the athletes that you're coaching, When you can connect to another person at the heart level, the bond you'll create is unbreakable and unforgettable. I know Majid and I will never forget this part of the interview because we were able to actually feel it. And this was all possible from spending a little bit of extra time learning more about Mike's background and getting to know him at the heart level, going straight to what mattered most to him or his why. It really does pay off to put in a little bit of extra effort into going a bit deeper to get to know and understand others who are important in your life for this reason. Our second aha moment is always think of ways to help others and give back. And I think that's what caught my attention the most when I first met Mike Bordick when he first emailed me. Here he was in his retirement, working on ways to give back to those who need it the most with his League of Dreams organization. He and the others who lead this organization found a way to contribute and help those who need these skills the most. If we all spend some time thinking of ways to help others, even if it's one person, the whole world would be a different place. 
Majid also noticed this, and we both wanted to be sure we highlighted what a noble cause the League of Dreams is. So how can you put this into action? You don't need to go big with this idea like Mike's doing, or you can with some planning, but I really do believe that we can all do this with small actions taken daily and make an impact that begins on our own community. Start by thinking about how are you a role model in your family. Start here and then expand out larger into your community and then further into your city, your state, and go as big as you want out into the world. Small details matter a lot and you really can show people who you are in a matter of seconds. It's all about seeing the we in social and emotional learning instead of the I. Social awareness versus self-awareness. Start small and do a bit more each day. When Mike Bordick reached out to us about ways to incorporate neuroscience into his work, I bet he didn't know how much this experience would help and inspire others. Two minds, when they come together, the we versus I, expands all our levels of awareness, leaving us with the thought of what else can we do to help others. And our third takeaway brings it all together. We're all connected. This one came through when Mike was talking about the solitude he felt while fishing in nature by himself, something he would do to unwind from a busy season. Something magical happens when we can feel the oneness of ourselves within nature. And this is something I'm going to explore more on a future episode as we look at the power that comes from being on, near, or by the ocean with the author and ocean expert Wallace J. Nichols. So to put this into action, if you've been following this podcast, I'm sure you'll have your own story of what happens to you while in nature. Mike Bordick talked about the meditative nature of fishing and what he would say were undisclosed benefits to being in nature. I felt strange and interesting things while hiking in the mountains or swimming in the depths of the ocean. When we get to our interview with Dr. Nichols, I'll ask him to explain why we feel such interesting connections with others in nature and why nature has the ability to calm us down and bring out our creative sides because this is what he has actually dedicated his entire lifetime to studying. And I don't think I need to explain this one any further other than to say how important it is for all of us to get into nature and then take note of what this peace and solitude means for you. And with those takeaways, I'll close out this episode. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Mike Bordick as much as we did. If you want to learn more about League of Dreams, you can visit leagueofdreams.org and connect with Mike Bordick through his website or through social media. I'll see you next week. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 